You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Luce's new stranger children were small and beautiful and violent. She learned early that it wasn't smart to leave them unattended in the yard with the chickens. Later, she'd find feathers, a scaled yellow foot with its toes clenched. Neither child displayed language at all, but the girl glared murderous expressions at her if she dared ask where the rest of the rooster went. The children loved fire above all elements of creation, a heap of dry combustibles delighted them beyond reason. Luce began hiding the kitchen matches, except the few she kept in the hip pocket of her jeans for lighting the stove. Within two days, the children learned how to make their own fire, from tinder and a green stick bowed with a shoelace. Tiny cavemen on benzedrine couldn't have made fire faster. Then they set the back corner of the lodge alight, and Luce had to run back and forth from the spring with sloshing tin buckets to put it out. She switched them both equally with a thin willow twig until their legs were striped pink, and it became clear that they would draw whatever pain came to them down deep inside and refuse to cry, at which point Luce swore to herself she would never strike them again. She went to the kitchen and began making a guilty peach pie. Charles Frazier is the author of Cold Mountain and Thirteen Moons. His new novel is Nightwoods. Thank you for joining me, Charles. Thank you. You know, Charles, I usually uh, make a very strict rule of only listening to instrumental music when I read a book. But with this book, I got out my uh, Nick Cave albums. I was listening to Your (laughs) Funeral, My Trial, and Murder Ballads. And it struck me that this book itself is a sort of literary murder ballad. Yeah, that was one of the things on my mind really early with this one, is those old Southern Appalachian murder ballads, um, you know, where some man has usually knocked up a young woman and and kills her and leaves. There, there's, uh, I can't remember whether it's Darling Corey or uh, which one, but the the woman says, uh, William, oh William, please tell me your mind. And he says, my mind is to kill you and leave you behind. <laughs> you know, uh, this book has such a, strikes us from when we hear the reading, we can tell from the very get-go that there's a very particular and uh, kind of richly carved prose voice in this and I'd like you to talk about how long you it took you to encounter that voice and whether you encountered the story within the voice or you discovered the voice within the story. Well, it, it took a while to find it. It's a little different from the past two books. It, um, I wanted it to feel quicker so the the sentences are maybe uh, frequently shorter and fragmentary and a little a little blunter in some cases. It took a, it took a little while. It took a while to find the voices for the main characters as well. Now, um, I really love the way the economy with which you set this book up. Did you know? I mean, it almost seems like you sat down at the typewriter and typed those first couple of paragraphs and said, okay, 
now now what? <laughs> no, that uh, I, I mean, I started out with a fairly different book. It was going to be a group of equal characters, mm-hmm. um, more like a sort of a portrait of a, a town with with this group of characters. But I probably knew somewhere in the back of my head that that two or three of that group would fade away and disappear, and two or three would rise to to the surface and be the the main characters. And and Luce, once the kids came into the book, then Luce became the main character for me. You know, I I really love the way that we meet the characters in in, in this kind of a. It's very. Uh, stripped back the way the way you introduce each of the characters and, and we kind of see them externally and, and I really like that that feeling of the seeing the characters from the outside and, and you let the reader build the character in a sense and I, I really like that is that something that did you have to like strip away a bunch of stuff this seems like a book that was carved from maybe a you know you saw this book within a larger block <laughs> yeah well there there was a lot of uh, a lot of cutting mm-hmm I began to feel like a lot of backstory was not uh, was not necessary for the characters, and that that it really was good to see them behaving without getting too far into them early on, mm-hmm. and learn the characters kind of like you learn people you meet in your life, where you you know you you know a little bit about them, then you know a little bit more, and you are surprised by some of their opinions or behaviors or whatever background I really wanted to um, uh, to keep it spare you know also what what uh, struck me about this book this is just a, an absolutely classic and very tense uh, southern gothic and, and I love that kind of that gothic feel everything feels kind of haunted there's nothing supernatural happening per se yeah. but there's just a feeling of ominous doom and reminded me of quite a bit of the uh, Flannery O'Connor's work in the way that yeah. there's there are no ghosts but there are ghosts there are ghosts yeah these these characters are all you know haunted in a way by their pasts even though they're relatively young people um, at least at least uh, loose and stubblefield and bud the the sort of bad guy in the in the story are relatively young, but um, but the, their minds keep keep going back and going back, and they can't let go of the past and move forward. And the sense of time in this book is so wonderful because um, here we are. We're in the 21st century. It's shiny. It's new. There's computers, and you know we're got space shuttles and space stations. And the 60s that you take us back to doesn't seem all that far away. I mean, we had a space program in the 60s, mm-hmm. but in the 60s we meet people who were having a bon vivant, good time in the 20s, and then we meet somebody else who's back in 1898, and you kind mm-hmm. of like dissolve. It's like you drop drop a little lozenge of prose. In the Appalachian backwoods, and dissolve the entire 20th century. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, there's 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 sort of different layers of time going on at the at the same moment. I mean, I know people right now who are still mostly living in the 60s, and so Lucy's neighbor uh, Maddie, an old older lady, um, is really still kind of living at the the tail end of the 19th century. Um, Stubblefield thinks of himself as this guy living right in the right in the present moment, at least. And one thing too, you you talk about this, 
that out there on in the wilderness um, and this is still true to this day, I would presume, that when you get on the edge of civilization in America, and there's lots of places you can do it, mm-hmm. it's not that different from the 19th century. And um, there's one really great meditation where um, Luce thinks, uh, you know, that they could, provided they don't poison stuff or blow it up, <laughs> you know, you could always ratchet back to that simpler life that she herself has decided to leave. Yeah, she's she's thinking about um, the modern world and and thinking about what you know what we've left behind and should we have left some of those some of those elements uh, behind? Thinking you know, that, but they're not irretrievable. Um, we could we could if we're going in the wrong direction, we could turn around and go back. I, I'm not so not so sure of that myself, but but loose loose believes it or wants to. Well, the past really haunts all the characters in this book in, you know, a very vivid way. It's it's certainly not over, and that's one of the things yeah. I think you do a great job of kind of peeling back for us. And, and uh, as you wrote this book, did you, like, discover um, how it was going to play out, or did you have a pretty good idea? Oh, I I had no idea where I was going when I started this. No outline, no sense of who the main character was. The children weren't in the book the first maybe six months of working on it. The first year of working on a book for me is just finding finding the, the characters before I find the story, really. And it's just allowing myself the freedom to to go off on, you know, wild goose chases and um and go down dead end roads um, and what that means is I throw away a lot of writing. This book has a, a real kind of archetypal and mythic feel. You kind of uh, ratchet us back to characters who seem very real and grounded in their world yet they also seem to kind of, uh, all of them, have a kind of representational, like I say, uh, mythic feel figures and I'm wondering if there was any particular uh, mythos you had in mind when you were writing this, if there was something you were thinking about, or if it's, or if that feel just is uh, comes naturally as a result of the way you write. One of the things I was thinking about was film noir. I don't, I don't know exactly what to call this book. It has elements of mystery in it, but I guess I think of it as as a sort of a, a noir. And I I was watching. Uh, just dozens of those those wonderful old movies Night over of the, the past Hunter. five years, Night of the Hunter, or um, my favorite, Out of the Past. Mm-hmm. Well, it's uh, that makes perfect sense. Yeah, it really does have a good feel. I, I to my mind, I I really like the 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 Southern Gothic uh, aspect of it because you have kind of a monster in it, and who. Mm. Buddy, and you you have a, a heroine uh, locked away in a in a remote castle, and you have a knight in shining armor or a shining car at least, <laughs> attempting to rescue her. You have all those kind of elements there, but they're all kind of like uh, ratcheted back and perfectly fitted into this beautifully evoked Appalachian setting. Do do you live where you write? I mean, do you live in a place like this? Some of the time. Okay. Um, I'm I'm in uh, Western North Carolina in the mountains, in the warm months, and I'm out in the woods, probably 150 days a year. 
you know, for at least a couple hours, mountain biking or hiking or running. What's your writing schedule like then? I mean, do you like wake up at O Dark Hundred and write? And... Oh, I can't even, I can hardly do anything but drink coffee and watch the news for a couple hours when I wake up. <laughs> no, I, I, you know, sort of do, do errands, get my exercise, and then by three in the afternoon, I need to be sitting at my desk getting ready to, to start, uh, to start working. And um, then just go until I can't think of anything else, which is usually maybe five hours, six hours. The setting for this, too, is as much a, a character as, as any of the, the human beings, and you do such a great job of evoking it. The language um, of, the, of the landscape is just so rich and full. Do you like? Do you know when you walk around, when you're biking through the woods, do you point and say, oh, that's this kind of plant, that's this kind of animal, and see all these kind of things? Or do you have a guide or, or something? <laughs> well, I learn that stuff. And then if I don't use it for a couple of years, then I'm looking at a plant and thinking, I used to know the name of that plant. <laughs> with, uh, with third person, limited third person narration, some of it is constructing a narrator. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so I, I try to make sure my narrator knows all of those <laughs> things, even if I don't. Well, I really love the narration of this book because it has a, a very, I mean, it fits the scene and the the action so perfectly and I'm wondering when you finally figured out what the guts of the book were did you get in the groove at some point and say and just were able to just crank this out perfectly no No, I'm I'm slow and I'm really much more a reviser than a writer Mm -hmm. Um, everything gets gone over and gone over and gone over uh, trying to get the language the way I want it. So I can write a, you know, a kind of semi-readable first draft and then, you know, four or five more passes through it eventually shapes it up. But, um, but it takes, it takes a long time for me. Do you write the whole story through and then go through again? No. Or do you just like, is it like a kind of a churning work in progress? Yeah. And, you know, and I'll get stuck on a scene so then I'll go back and work for a couple of days revising previous scenes, and then maybe by then I'll have some more ideas and be able to move forward on the current one. It's, it's always a forward-backward, you know, one step forward, two steps backward kind of process. Well, you know, one of the things that's kind of at the heart of this book is the way we bring up our children in America. Not so good often, especially yeah. in rural areas. And I think this novel really has a powerful, a number of powerful statements about that. But what I like is that it's that all that stuff is ratcheted so far into the background that it's not heavy-handed. And I'm wondering, you know, how much of it was your thought, oh, I want really want to do this, or how much you kind of said, okay, I've got to get off the get off get off the soapbox. Well, some of it was that um, you know now if you had two little kids who didn't speak even though they once were learning to talk and they're setting fires and killing chickens and that sort of thing you'd run them by every doctor psychologist whatever but this is a a good while ago in a very isolated community 
and the just the um, the resources were very different. So I wanted to I wanted to keep that kind of thing realistic. I also didn't want to, for example, diagnose the kids mm-hmm. uh, exactly. So I was I was just trying to uh, to keep that within the range of uh, nineteen the early nineteen sixties. And why did you choose? I mean this time period i mean was this just an artifact of wanting to write a noir and one and needing some of those uh some of the mechanics you know cars and such might have been some of it some of it was uh was the music that Mm. i wanted to use it's one of the ways i get find my way into a character is through music and with with loose when i realized that uh when i realized that she might um uh, listen to this really raw R&B music from the late 50s and early 60s, that early James Brown before he was on Top 40 Radio, or really early Ike and Tina Turner, or, um, or the, the, the really uh, hard blues stuff, uh, Howlin' Wolf, for example, that this woman who's very closed in and is, is holding the world at arm's length by being the caretaker of this isolated old lodge, you know that she would listen to that very, very passionate, powerful music, and find a you know a, she well she describes it as if it's a prayer being offered. And, and that's one of the things too. I like the uh, there's some really interesting kind of uh, religious threads running through this, and they kind of run in opposition to one another. Yeah. On one hand, you have uh, Buddy, and let's talk about Buddy, because yeah. he has an interesting concept of religion. He yeah. thinks that Jesus and the, the great white shark and Jaws are pretty much buddies. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. He went to a church that emphasized Jesus' blood and was deeply confused by that and remains confused. So uh, he sees blood as a cleansing force in a very strange and violent and self-serving way. And he has a shark's tooth, a fossilized shark's tooth around his neck. And when he panics, gets scared, he puts that in his mouth sometimes and, and cuts his tongue with it to taste blood and get his courage back up, his faith back up. Uh, that's and he has a a great uh, you have a great image in there of uh, it's kind of the uh, cover the world uh, Sherwin Williams cover the world yeah yeah the old paint advertisement with red paint dripping off the the equators of the globe but uh, that's yeah that's the way he sees uh, sees blood and one of the things too I think that's a real mark of the Southern Gothic and that you do so well in this book is um, the kind of connections that kind of rise up because we meet these people and you know we've got loose over here and maybe buddy over there and we know there's some connection but as the novel proceeds and we meet more and more people in the town we find all these connections and as a reader that's a really satisfying experience and I'm wondering if it's as satisfying to write uh, for you as a writer to discover those connections as it is for us as readers to encounter them. Yeah, it's 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 one of those things that kind of happens in the first year of a book for me is uh, getting making those connections, and with this one, I wanted the readers to know the characters by themselves before the characters start interacting much with each other. So mm-hmm. you 
you've got chapter by chapter getting to know these people on their own, and then they start start rubbing up against each other. And that's a that's a really fun uh, way to encounter them because we kind of it's like uh, they're all on the edge of a vortex, swirling closer and closer, and then finally it gets down to the middle, and, and they are all circling the drain together. <laughs> <laughs> You know, you have a, a an interesting vision of the family, and as a mystery writer, and that's what this is really, is essentially it's a novel of suspense, a mystery, or a noir. I really, you know, I totally agree with that take on it. Did you steep yourself in mysteries of the family? Um, this, is, I mean, there's almost as much Edgar Allan Poe in this as there is yeah. James N. Cain. <laughs> it's somewhere between the two of them. Yeah. I, I didn't do a lot of reading of um, sort of the classic American mystery novels. I mean, I have in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, Raymond Chandler is one of my all-time favorite writers. Now, with this one, I, what I was one of the things I was having a good time with is using some of those narrative conventions of those genres, and then you know you you start having expectations because you've seen movies, you've read books, where these kinds of plot devices lead to this kind of outcome. And I kind of had fun getting somewhat close to that point and then swerving and trying to <laughs> trying to throw a little, uh, you know, a little uh, uh, oddity into it. Well, I think that's, that is one of the true virtues of the, the southern uh, gothic genre is that it kind of takes it allows you to take I mean the dictionary definition is that it's the classic gothic girl in the castle somebody outside reset into the southern setting and then you have all these twists and turns and the south is so inimitably twisted you it's you do a great job of that and I'm wondering do were there like specific events? I mean, were there any like real life events or any newspaper readings or research that kind of played into this? Because sometimes it does feel like, you know, parts of this novel feel like little clippings, you know, yellowed clippings you might find yeah. in somebody's desk. Yeah, no, there, I can't think of anything that came from, you know, from an actual uh, um, event with this. No, I was I was just um, just trying to um, throw these characters together and let Bud sort of do his worst. <laughs> Bud does do a pretty good job of being his worst. But you know what I really liked about it is there's and it's so it's so great is that there's kind of a sweet little friendship that he has with this guy named Lit. Yeah, <laughs> and, yeah. and you do a good job of you know first we meet Bud and he's kind he's clearly quite monstrous and very twisted but then we get to see him in a set setting where he has a little bit of stability yeah. and we kind of like him and that's interesting the way you make us like the monster you know he's got a, an element of charm and humor uh, he cons people and um, um, you know he has never had really close friends and um, it's inconvenient but this close friend happens to be a deputy sheriff in this town and uh, uh, they become dependent on each other in uh, in several ways one of them is almost like a father-son kind of thing the other is dope dealer and user kind of thing 
Now, speaking of dope dealer and user, I loved kind of, you know, your take on the early history of dope dealing. And what are these inhalers? You describe these inhalers. I've never seen these before. Yeah, they, they were, you know, the the uh, sinus inhalers mm-hmm. um, that that had uh, benzedrine in the little uh, the little strip of fabric or sort of a woolly little strip inside. Really? And so you could just, you know, you when when benzedrine was hard to find, you could just crack open one of those inhalers, and and then those were outlawed, um, and other ingredients went into them in uh, either the late fifties or early sixties. Wow, that's so interesting. Yeah, the the uh, uh, the some of the beatniks uh, liked those inhalers. <laughs> yeah, well, there's a great scene where he disassembles one and, <laughs> and finds the strip and gets going for a couple of days. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I, I also like the the vision too of you know the the dry counties and I guess there are, are there still dry counties in in South Carolina uh, North Carolina these days not as many as there used to be when I was when I was growing up there uh, you'd have to drive pretty much two hours in any direction uh, to buy to buy alcohol so that led to uh, a really booming business for boot, bootleggers. Oh, it's uh, yeah. Now nowadays, it's cigarettes. <laughs> it's kind of funny how we uh, we we paint ourselves into corners endlessly, don't we? Uh, the economy in this book is so great. The way that um, you strip us down and you know keep us on a very tense plot because from the from the very first page, we know something's something's gonna go really bad. Some bad thing is gonna happen, and something. Somebody's going to come and get it. and But yet, I think there's a very deliberate and almost relaxed pace to the prose, the plotting. It's like a rhythm. I mean, but you don't have a rhythm that, that's like... It's yeah. more like... And it's scarier <laughs> for, for all that. Yeah, well, I, w- I, was, I, w- I wanted two elements of the book to, to be creating attention Mm -hmm. and there's this story that's wanting to move quickly but then you've got to slow down if you're really going to write about characters and places Mm -hmm. you've got to slow down so I was I was having a good time writing this book letting those two things uh, kind of be pulling in opposite directions sometimes I thought it worked really well and um, it helps make uh, the way the different aspects of the book um, uh, play off of one another, it makes each one seem more authentic and richer. There's a, a romance in this book that I think is really well played and sweet and funny and charming and goofy and yeah. also, you know, maybe a, a little dangerous. And, and then there are the more, you know, uh, frenetic, uh, terrorizing parts. So I'd like you to talk about, you know, how those parts play off of one another. Did you were you writing them in separate times? I mean, because they're separate chapters. But did you find yourself kind of intermixing them on the same day, or sometimes, yeah, yeah. I mean, I just sort of go with whatever uh, whatever feels like it needs to be written that day. So I may be mainly working in a forty-page section of the book for a couple of weeks, but jumping back and forth in that that range you know, hour by hour while I'm working just because some, some idea will pop up or there'll be a, 
a thing that I'm doing that makes me realize, oh, I can connect that to this if I go back and change something. So it, it's a, it's it's that kind of uh, that kind of process. There are places where the elastic is a little tighter, and places where it's it's got a little more give in it. I'm wondering, are, are you a musician or a painter? No, okay. neither one. Because it seems there's there's quite a, there's music in the words, and there's kind of a, the the landscapes are very painterly, I think, and it and the way you write sometimes seems to have more in common with a a brush stroke or a or a strummed chord than you know like a, a static reeled out uh, uh, landscape description or you know an evocation of somebody's mood as they're walking into this nightclub or the description of the wonderfully surreal Tim Burton-esque nightclub that they go to <laughs> is there some place like that that you go to frequently no no it's probably my imagination of um uh, of some of those illegal bars in uh, dry counties uh, back in the back in the fifties and sixties. Well, I, I'm, one thing that I think that too that this book does so well is to create um, the sixties in a way that do, that absolutely avoids every single cliche of the 60s and and I think that's really interesting though that you made that choice you know we we don't have to hear any of the there are none of the normal sound bites there are none of the normal you know uh high points oh it's this and this and this Kennedy da, 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 da. you get I mean you know that's all just completely stripped out and was that a deliberate decision on your part I, I think it was yeah um that it, well, it was it was important to me that this was before the Kennedy assassination, before the Beatles, before those enormous cultural uh, changes. Um, you know, when the world, especially the rural South, the isolated uh, parts of the Southern Appalachians, um, were really a lot more like the, you know, the '40s or the '30s um, than the present time. I mean, when when I was uh, a kid, uh, the Iceman still came around uh, delivering ice to people who didn't have electric refrigerators. Uh, there was a blacksmith shop up the street from our house. Wow. Yeah. That's pretty rural. Pretty rural. <laughs> how, how long were, did you live in those kind of, under those kind of circumstances? Uh, until, what age? until they changed. <laughs> I, I was probably maybe 10 or so when, when things got more and more modern and the... Um, uh, to make a telephone call, you didn't have to talk to the operator every time you picked the phone up. Wow, you got you got you got to do that. Yeah, pick up the phone. The operator says number, please. Wow, <laughs> <laughs> how cool! Uh, yeah. Did you get to do drop drills eventually? Oh, the uh, the um, um, under the, the desk, yeah, the yeah. fallout thing. Yeah, yeah. we were really uh, not that far from Oak Ridge, Tennessee, where mm-hmm. where a lot of uh, nuclear research was done. And, so we we all assumed that uh, that if the bombs started falling, they'd be falling right over the mountain from from us. So they they just gave up on the drop drills and figured you you <laughs> we shadows. We were going anyway. we to be toast. Yeah. <laughs> when you decided to to write kind of a noir and a mystery, you know you've written historical novels in the past. Did you enter it with a different mindset than your uh, previous historic your historical novels, or did you just 
because this is also obviously a historical novel as well. It's not historic if your memory goes back that far. Um, for my, Mine does, for my, actually. For my daughter, it's, it's a historical novel. But I, I was happy to get out of the 19th century. Mm-hmm. I, I was really, um, really happy to, um, you know, to write about characters who, when they go somewhere, they get in the car. And, um, you know, there's radio and some people have televisions, not loose. Yeah, so it was it was um, just part of keeping it fresh for me. It was was getting into a different time period, different kind of story, different kind of characters to a degree. Do you see yourself uh, shape shifting again into yet another more you know contemporary novel, or or who knows, future novel, futuristic novel, or something farther into yeah. the past? Well, I, I can certainly imagine uh, something set uh, closer to the present time than, you know, than 50 or so years ago. Uh, yeah, and in, in fact, the, the book I'm just barely starting to think about for the next one would be, would be uh, the, the end of the, the 20th century would be a, a large part of the book anyway oh well that sounds really interesting i'm i'm intrigued because right that's like practically like science fiction for you (laughs) (laughs) do do you how far are you into it and and how do you you know in these early early stages of a novel do you just i'm do you like when you're taking your walks through the woods do you take a your little cell phone recorder with you and make notes or no um the the guys at the mountain bike store that I that I shop at keep saying, "Oh, Charles goes out in the woods and thinks about his books." And I keep saying, "No, when I'm in the woods, I do not think about writing. I'm, my mind is uh, is as free of that as I can get it." Now at this at this early stage on this book, and I mean it's really early because we were still doing um, in this past August, still doing you know, uh, galley uh, uh, readings and still making changes in August. Mm-hmm. Wow. So that's... I haven't had much time to, to think about it. That We were doing that in August, and my book tour started in early September. So, um, <laughs> so these are just flickers of ideas that, are, that uh, maybe after Christmas I'll, I'll start, uh, start working out a little more seriously. I've been speaking with Charles Frazier. His new book is Nightwoods. Thank you for joining me, Charles. Thank you. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.